Let's go and uh, open up our Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're going to read all 25 verses. These are the words of God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, And did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us? As your authority for doing these things. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you that Christ is our high priest, that he is our truthful prophet, and that he is our sovereign king. You have established your son on Zion, and we rejoice in this fact. Help us to learn from your word tonight, so that your spirit will send us forth into the world for the glory of God. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. So it's great to be back with you all again. I'm excited to dive back into the Gospel of John, and uh, so I have a lot of pent-up energy from two weeks um, being off. 
So we'll, we'll see what happens. But we have arrived now to chapter 2, and it's here where we find two stories that are typically taken separately, but in fact, they really belong together. As I see it, they belong together. The question we need to consider, though, at the outset is, and we need to do that, of course, if we want to be faithful readers of the Bible, this is the question. What happens when the Word of God becomes flesh? What happens when God takes on flesh? What happens when God becomes man? When angels and angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man? What happens when the Son of God is anointed as the priest, the prophet, and the king, the sovereign king? Well, this is the thing that happens, what I'm calling an eschatological reckoning. That's what transpires. Now, when God the Son takes on flesh, it isn't as though he did so quietly out in the mountains of Tibet, all right? Jesus didn't come and take on the yoke of an ascetic monk tucked away in the mountains. No, he took on the form of a man. He became a real human being, a real flesh, flesh and blood human being. He had, hung, he had hunger. He had to use the restroom from time to time. That is a man. That is a human being. And he did so. He took on flesh as a young Jewish first century male. The son of man taking on flesh didn't happen over in the corner. As Paul says, uh, I believe it was to Agrippa in the book of Acts, look, these things weren't done in a corner. It was done out in public. This was for everyone to see. Now, for Jesus to be... God is quite a claim, but the flip side of that is true. What does this say about God? See, contextually speaking, it's important for us to know that the gospel of the kingdom is rooted in a particular historical context, in a particular historical place. So in a very real sense, we know the story from the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people, right? After Adam had been excommunicated from the garden... Uh, after Noah had survived the flood by God's grace, after the scattering of the nations, God chose to enter into covenant with Abraham. And, and Abraham's great, 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 great grandchildren, um, they all formed the Israelite monarchy. So God had chosen to enter into covenant with the Hebrews and the Israelites. Um, we might even call them Jacobites. Um, those people, they were brought into covenant with God. So they were the vassals, and Yahweh was the conquering suzerain. He was the king. Now, all of this history matters. All of this history matters because all of history is our history. But to get more to the point I want to make for our purposes here, this was and is Jesus of Nazareth's history. All right? He didn't sort of just drop out of the sky without a context. Jesus was in a context, in a place, in a history, and this is his history. Now, I say all that because I really think we need to learn to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, with an understanding of biblical history so that we can properly interpret the actions and the words of Jesus Christ. So, in other words, we'll just say this, the Old Testament is our Bible, too, contrary to what you might hear from our dispensationalist brothers and sisters. Now, the two stories we have in front of us this evening are two different ge geographical places, miles apart. Um, the first story is in Cana, which is in the northern part 
of Israel, that is in Galilee. The second story is located in Jerusalem at the temple complex, all right? The first story we have is about the covenant king bringing blessings, right? The, the covenant blessing of Christ, who is the priest king. And that's done at a wedding. Now, the second story is all about the covenant cursing of Christ, the prophet king at the temple. So I just want us to work our way through. I'm going to comment as we go. So make sure you have your Bibles open. You can follow along with me. And then we'll draw out some implications. Verse 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, a quick note. The third day... We should interpret that as the third day from the fourth day, which was mentioned in the previous chapter, which, incidentally, puts this on day seven. And what is day seven on the calendar? A Sabbath. It's a Sabbath day. John wants us to see the miracle at Cana as being a Sabbath miracle. So Sabbath rest is a blessing in Christ. That's sort of part of the point he's making. Now, note real quick that the mother of Jesus was there, right? You see that? And so was Jesus, so was his disciples. They were all invited to this wedding. Most probably, this was a wedding of someone they knew, quite probably a family member. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, Now, quick observation. The only way that Mary would have known that there was no wine is if she knew what was happening in the kitchen. And this is probably why it was a relative who was married. She's in the know. She knows something. So she's working probably with the event coordinator and probably working with the kitchen crew, the staff there. So now we had the introduction to the story, the setting to the story. Now we have a problem that faces us. There's no wine. There's no wine. This would have been a calamitous social faux pas of astronomical proportions. All right, that's like you inviting a whole bunch of people to your house for dinner, tell them not to bring anything, but you have zero food. So sort of an awkward situation, all right? So what does Mary do? She tells Jesus about it. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, you shouldn't read that in a condescending voice. Woman, um, that was most definitely a term of respect. Uh, So it was not Jesus being coy. It wasn't him, you know, being cheeky. Woman, why are you talking to me? No, it was a term of respect. But he asked the question, what does this have to do with us? In other words, the time for the full revelation of the kingdom of God through the atonement of Christ on the cross... That's the hour, right, that we'll see all throughout the book of John. He talks about my hour has not yet come. That is not yet time. We're not there yet. Jesus was essentially saying, it's sort of a cryptic thing, but essentially, here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, dear mother, why are you telling me this? Why are you telling me this? Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it confidence in her son to help fix the problem. She instructs the servants to do whatever Jesus says, a command that applies to everyone, everywhere, in all times, right? Do what he says. That Here you go. For all of you New Year's resolution folks, that is great advice. <laughs> do whatever Jesus says. That's your goal for this year. I'm glad I could help you. 
Verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So we have the setting, we have the problem, now we're going to figure out how we get to the solution. How's the story going to work itself out? The plot shifts. We were told by John there were six. How many? Six kids, right? You hear that? There were six water pots present at the wedding. And the reason that they would have been there, because I've been to a lot of weddings, done a lot of weddings, and never seen six pots sitting there, the reason is, and John tells us, it was because of the Jewish custom or the Jewish rite of purification. Now, each of those six pots contained probably anywhere between 20 and 30 gallons of water. So we're talking about well over 100 gallons of water there sitting in these pots. Now, the pots were there because of washings, ceremonial washings. You would, people would come to the, to the wedding and they would wash their hands, they would wash their feet, and they would cleanse themselves before they partook of the meal and the celebration and those types of things. So that's, that's why they were there. Now, note this. Jesus did not turn water into wine here. What? That's what it says. He turned the water for the Jewish purification ceremony water into wine. That's not a small thing we should ignore. This isn't just about any old, any old water here. He didn't go by the nearest creek and turn it into wine. There were pots that were there for the Jewish custom of purification. He turned those into wine. Now that's an important distinction, and we'll talk about that shortly. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. The steward, you could translate that. So apparently at this point, the pots, they weren't completely full. People had been using them. Um, Jesus then orders them to fill the water pots. And they fill them all the way to the top. So this is not a mixture of water and wine, which would have been a normal routine of everyday Jewish life. The pots have water in them all the way to the top. They're filled to the brim, it says. And then the miracle occurs. The miracle occurs. We don't know how. We don't know exactly what was going on. Did they change immediately as soon as the water was filled to the top? Um, did Jesus snap his fingers? Probably not. Uh, he's not a magician. He's the son of God doing miracles. But at some point, we have wine. There's wine that happens. And so what they do is draw it out of the pots and they take it to the head waiter, the master of ceremonies. They take it to the guy in, in charge. Now look at verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. The head waiter didn't know what was going on. He had no clue. The servants knew what was happening, and thus this wasn't some sort of magic trick. And in response to the taste test, he calls the bridegroom. Look at 10. And he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The, the head waiter tells the bridegroom, 
that standard operating procedure for events like this require us to serve the good wine first and then the watered-down, not-so-good wine to be served later, after people were slightly inebriated and less inclined to criticize the not-so-good wine. That's normal procedure, but we've done something backwards. Note that's how the kingdom functions. It's an upside-down thing. See, the head waiter accuses the bridegroom of of messing this up. Why are you saving the good stuff till last? That's supposed to go first. There's a reason for that. Look at verse 11 and 12. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, they went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. This is the beginning of Jesus' miracles. That's what John tells us. This is the first sign of seven signs in the Gospel of John. There are seven signs, seven being obviously a number of perfection, but seven tied to this new creation week. This is the very beginning. This is the start. He he manifested his glory, and as a result, the disciples believed in him. Remember John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw the glory of Christ on display in this miracle, the wedding at Cana. Now, a few things to consider. I mentioned that this was the priest king's miracle meant to bring blessing. That's how we should read this story. There are covenant blessings and covenant curses in God's covenant world. That's how this whole thing works. And this story is considered to, uh, to be a blessing. This is a blessing. The wedding here is meant to be a foreshadowing of the wedding supper of the Lamb. In other words, it's eschatological. Eschatology, we tend to think merely in terms of the future. But we're also thinking in terms of the past in anticipation of the future. This is an eschatological story. In other words, this is a preview of coming attractions. The, the water into wine, or more, accurate, more accurately, we should say the Jewish custom of purification water that was turned into wine, is a prophetic sign given to the people as a witness of Jesus Christ's ministry. It's a sign. It means something. Jesus is a prophet, and prophets are always doing things. They enact parables. Um, as we'll see in the next story, of course. But they do powerful things. I think prophetic ministry is something we need to to rehash. We'll talk about this later, but something we need to understand is the, the church isn't just saying things. The church is doing things. Even bizarre things like standing out on a Sunday morning at the murder mill. That's That's not just us being weird. That's us being a prophetic witness. So while many reduce this story down to how Jesus, Jesus gives people greater joy so you can have greater happiness today, although that's probably true and we can certainly say those types of things, the reality is the blessing here is an eschatological reckoning. Things are different now. Jesus is here. This prophet, priest, king is here to bring about a new order of things, this new covenant age, the dawn of a new creation, what we call the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus is turning the, the purification water into wine is an absolutely marvelous sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The, the old is going away. The old is going away. The new is coming. The old order of how things have been going is now going to give way to this new order that is now coming. In other words, the old heavens and old earth are passing away. The new heavens and new earth has come. So that's really essentially what we see. The, the wedding at Cana, the miracle at Cana, is all about Christ's kingdom coming into the world. What happens when God becomes man? Heaven and earth are reunited in Christ. That's what happens. There's a reason that John tells us that there are six water pots. There are six water pots that are changed into wine on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Christ, our Sabbath, has come. See, John the Baptist, John the forerunner, he baptizes with water, which is connected to the purification water. Jesus has now come to baptize with the Spirit. You see, in Christ's kingdom, water is not offered to guests. Spirits are offered, right? The Holy Spirit, to be sure. That's the connection between, you ever heard wine and spirits? There's a reason for that. So in Christ's kingdom, water is not given to us. The Holy Spirit's given to us. The good wine. The marvelous wine. The wonderful kingdom of God wine. The kingdom produces the most best of wines. See, the true bridegroom, why is this a wedding? Jesus shows up to a wedding. He's the true bridegroom. The true bridegroom has manifested his glory at the wedding. And the only way, the only way men are going to truly find out about Christ's Sabbath rest is in him. See, the reckoning has now begun. Why is it Jewish purification water? Why, why? Judaism is found lacking. Judaism is found lacking. He has come to a very broken system of religion. It, has, it is broken and only Christ now can fill it. Only Christ, think of the old wine and, and the new wineskins. Same type of concept here. Judaism is now, has now become this status quo, dirty water in the pots. But the kingdom is now the good wine. The kingdom through Jesus Christ. See, only Christ and his rule and reign can bring men joy, can bring men rest, and can bring men dominion. Now, the second story. The second story is about Christ, who is a prophet king. He is the prophet king, bringing curses on the old order of things. So Jesus reconstructs at the wedding, but now Jesus is going to deconstruct at the temple. There's a place for both in our theology. So let's work through it real quick. Verse 13. John writes, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is, by the way, note that Passover this is the first of three Passovers that are noted by John. And as is the pattern of any first century Jew, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Real quick, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, they really don't spend a lot of time around Jerusalem. Most of Jesus' ministry is north. It's in Galilee. He goes into some other places Jesus is constantly going back to Jerusalem. Three times he's at the Passover. 
So Passover theology, we'll see that show up periodically in our study, but it's going to come up even more. As Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, there's a reason John has a fascination with Passover. And there's a reason why, you know, Pilate washes his hands clean. Pilate's washing his hands of the Lamb of God, which was a task of the high priest. There's all these connections that John makes in his gospel. Verse 14. And he found in the temple, this is Jesus, he's up, at the, up in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. John gives us information, more information about the setting and what's taking place. He goes to the temple. Now, just so you're aware, think of this contextually, and I don't remember the exact number because I didn't look it up this week. Josephus had said at one point, I think this is what he said, if my memory serves me correctly, that around the Passover, you're looking at a million um, lambs slaughtered and millions of more of people there. When Jesus goes to the temple, it's not like there are five tables set up and five people and no one else around. This is Passover, there are millions and millions of Jewish people who have made the journey to Jerusalem for the celebration. And that's normal. That would have been a normally occurring thing. So Jesus goes to the temple, and we're not talking about five people being there. There were probably thousands there in the outer court where he was at the temple, the court of the Gentiles. So he goes to the temple. The money changers, they're there. They're, what are they doing? Well, they're exchanging foreign currency. They're exchanging foreign currency. And they're also helping make sure that people have an animal sacrifice that's in pristine condition. You, you can't travel thousands of miles and expect to have an offering in good shape. So this wasn't a terrible thing in and of itself. It was a, a, a good thing. There were lambs and other offerings that you could buy there at the temple and be ensured that, that you have a good sacrifice because that's what God requires. He requires the best. So it's not inherently bad, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. Verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now, we're not told about the whip and the other gospel accounts, but Jesus is clearly upset, um, angry, we might say. Jesus is clearly angry with what he sees happening, and thus he expels the money changers. He drives them out. He drives out the animals. Think about that. That's a curious action. God demands a sacrifice, but what does he demand? What is the thing that God demands more than a sacrifice? Obedience. Obedience. He, so he's driving the animals out of the temple, which is where they belong because that's a sacrificial system, but he drives them out, and then what does he do? He flips tables. So much for Jesus being kind. He flips the tables. He drives everyone out and says, get out of here. What have they done? He gives this prophetic denunciation. He acts and then he speaks. He explains why he's frustrated. 
They had taken the father's house and they've turned it into a house of business, he says, a house of commerce. Instead of being centered on prayer, it had become centered on commerce. Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, they're watching this unfold, and they recall a passage from Psalm 69.9 that Jesus' zeal for his father's house will consume him. The Jews then said to him, verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? The Jews want to know something. Well, interestingly enough, they don't deny the charges of corruption. Instead, they want to know who Jesus' elders are. They want to know, what's your authority? Where does it come from? In fact, we want to know what sign will signal to us that you have authority, right? Uh, you might say, show us your ordination papers right now. We demand to know. They're seeking from other men instead of seeking from God. Verse 19, Jesus answered them. This is a phenomenally brilliant response to this question. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This isn't, this isn't a question some translations, I think, get this wrong. It's a command. Jesus issues a command, a warning shot over the bow, if you will. Keep on destroying this temple. That's how we should read the Greek. Keep on destroying this temple with your corrupt practices and your unjust oppression. And Jesus says in three days, he will raise it up. Now, what's that supposed to mean? Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body, John tells us. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed that scripture, they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Herod had ignited and initiated the rebuilding of the temple 46 years prior. And they want to know why Jesus thinks that he can build it in three days. It's taken 46 years. And even in the time of Jesus, the temple wasn't finished. They're still renovating it in the time of Jesus. And he thinks he can rebuild it in three days. Phenomenal, uh, phenomenal carpentry skills and masonry skills. He can build it in three days. And they want to know why. But is that what he's talking about? No, he says the temple that he was talking about was his very own body. And after the res resurrection, the disciples recall and remember what he said here. And they finally saw the connections. We'll come back to this in a minute. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the corruption and therefore did not trust himself to the people who believed on him as they saw his various signs and his various miracles. Why? Jesus needed no man's validation. He, he, he needed no authority from the Sadducees or the scribes or the Pharisees. He, needed the, he did not need the Sanhedrin to give him authority. He knew what was in man. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they were compromised. So who is Jesus concerned about? Well, we know from his prayer in John 17, he came to do the Father's will. 
He doesn't need man's approval. He's come to do the Father's will. Now, this eschatological reckoning takes a turn here in the story. We've moved from the king's blessing to the king's cursing. Now, consider the history. Consider the historical context for a minute. The first century was a political hotbed. It was a disaster. It makes our infighting between the Republicans and Democrats look like kids throwing sand. This was not... The problem in the first century was deeply political. There were other things, of course. The the whole Greco-Roman world was unstable, as the Middle East is today. Think Syria. And it was a tapestry, if you will, of political, philosophical, and religious rhetoric. You had a lot of things happening and a lot of high-speed scenarios taking place alongside of it. You had many Jews who were compromised with Rome, like the Pharisees. You had many who absolutely hated Rome and their, their overlords, like the Pharisees, or excuse me, the others. And then you had some like the Zealots who wanted to take up arms and fight. They wanted to grab their gun and go to war, or their sword as it was. So Jesus' contemporaries, basically, they had taken either the quietest route, the quietest route, just duck down, it'll pass, We'll get over this. We'll get raptured out of here soon. (laughs) And thus, the quietest mode would be submitting themselves to Rome and basically, you know, figure out when God's going to do his thing. Or you had a compromised route. You weren't quiet, so you were engaged, but you were also compromised. And and then you would submit to Rome, at least on the outside, and then you'd try to figure out a way to get rid of them. You should know that even before Jesus' ministry, there was, there was tons of skirmishes between Rome and the Jews. Lots of various battles took place. Thousands of Jews dying in different battles. This was a hotbed. This was, this was a major problem, major tension during this time. So think about that context. And then here is a young Jewish prophet going around, enacting parables, doing miracles, and demonstrating a different kind of way altogether. We don't have to go the quietest route, and we don't have to go the compromised route. We don't have to go the aggressive route. There's a different way to handle this. The Jews of of Jesus' day knew that God was going to return to Zion. That was the beauty of the Old Testament promises. They knew he was coming. They knew from the Old Testament, and they knew that God would come back to his temple. He would fill the temple with his presence. Remember, Ezekiel saw the presence of God leave. But they waited, and they knew that God would return, and he would come back, and everything would be great. But it wasn't. Jesus, rather, God, Yahweh, had not come back to the temple. Things were in shambles. Rome was ruling the whole world, and things were bad. And the Pharisees, of course, they concocted a different type of story. They believed that if you just studied and obeyed Torah... That replaces the temple. You're fine. You can be with God as long as you're with Torah. Others thought differently, and of course, Jesus did too. Jesus came to the temple in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He came suddenly. The Lord suddenly comes into his temple. And his coming in this way wasn't exactly the manner widely assumed. Instead of filling the temple and bringing another exodus and bringing another destroying of the Romans, Jesus comes and he assesses the place and he finds that it is full of thieves. 
but not just thieves. The, the Greek word really has some overtones. We're talking about freedom-fighting revolutionaries. That's, what, that's who was present. The corruption had run so deep. It was all the way down in, in, in everything. Corruption had run so deep that it touched every area of temple life. The money changers, they were only the tip of the idolatrous iceberg. The whole of Judaism, summarily comprehended in the leadership of Rome, was completely and utterly deficient. It was completely defunct. The temple system was worthy only of condemnation. See, instead of serving God and neighbor, the temple became this top-down, statist, tyranny machine, this tyranny machine that oppressed the people and corrupted all of Judaism. And what Jesus does here in interrupting the sacrificial system, which would have been a major, major problem during Passover, he, he brings the whole thing to a halt. He demonstrates in his words, he demonstrates in his actions, something that would come within that generation, the destruction of the temple. Quite literally, Jesus came to town and there simply was not enough room in the city for two temples. There wasn't enough room. The city was not big enough for the both of them. Destroying Jesus, the true temple, will mean that their fate, their own destruction would happen and the corruption of this false temple will end in its complete ruin. Here's how you should read this passage here. If Jesus dies, the temple will die Thus, in his resurrection, Jesus will be placed as the true temple forever. Sort of, a, sort of a new sheriff in town moment. Jesus comes to the temple. There's a new sheriff in town. There's not room for both of them. And this cryptic saying of destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, Jesus is tying himself to the temple. He's tying himself to it in a way that none of them had. They had corrupted the whole thing. If Jesus dies, the temple dies. That's how this works. See, the sign they asked for, they asked for a sign from Jesus. I believe that was the sign what happened in the story before. This anointed prophet, priest, and king showed the beginning of signs, and it was a powerful imagery there at the wedding. The, the bridegroom had come. He had come to purify his bride, to gather his covenant people to himself. The wine signifying endless joy in Christ and, and obviously signifying the dawning of a new creation week demonstrates the superior nature of the new covenant and the kingdom of God over against the status quo of Israel. Now the temple rebuke, the demonstration, call it a cleansing if you must. I don't really like the term because they didn't walk in with Mr. Clean, clean Gloves and clean things. It wasn't a cleansing. It was a prophetic rebuke is what it was. That temple action takes the truth of what happened in Cana at the wedding and applies it to the status quo. In other words, Israel will be judged for her unfaithfulness. It is not going to be pretty. If Christ goes down, they go down. If one man dies for the nation, which is what the leaders had said, if you remember, if one man dies for the nation, then the whole nation is going to go down in eschatological flames. That is what's going to happen. And this eschatological reckoning was symbolized. It was enacted here in the temple rebuke, and it would happen 40, year later, 40 years later. 
in A.D. 70 when Titus and his army would raise the whole thing. The temple would be in flames. Millions would die. Devastation unknown to man. See, now before I, I give you some things to consider by way of application today, I want to I point something out real quick. In John's gospel, this incident of the temple, the temple rebuke, this incident happens here at the beginning. It's in chapter 2. But the incident happens at the end of the synoptics. What's going on? Matthew and Mark and Luke, they put this action at the end of his ministry. John puts it at the very beginning. Do we have a contradiction? Are the atheists right? Do we, do we have something that we can't reconcile? What, is, what, what do we do with this? Some scholars believe that John just moved the story for his own agenda. It probably happened at the end. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are right. But John just conveniently tucks it in here for his own theological purposes. Many, though, like myself, believe that it happened twice. And John has a theological agenda to teach us that there were two separate rebukes at the first Passover and then at the third Passover. Now, some aren't sure. They don't know what to think. But Matt read Leviticus 14 earlier. And some of you are probably thinking, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why would he be reading Leviticus? Who reads Leviticus? Very few people who are on their Bible reading plan in the month of January get to Leviticus and stop. Well, there's a reason for that. In Leviticus 14, the priest from the temple visits the leprous house once and then twice. And if the house was found to be leprous, what did they do in the passage? They tore it down, right? They tore down the house. Now, I'm convinced, and there are other scholars who think the same, that that's what happened here. Clearly, Jesus is anointed as, at his baptism as the great prophet, the high priest, right? The great king and prophet. And part of Jesus' actions in the temple are connected to this idea. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. We know that. But the Lamb of God who comes to the temple, and, and he's the sacrifice of God, he sees the corruption, the leprosy, and what happens? After two visits, it's consigned to destruction. The house of God is leprous and it must be destroyed. And I'm convinced that's how we should read this. Because John does do weird things. He has no story of the upper room. We have no communion passage in the Gospel of John. But what do we have in John 6? Jesus walks around telling people, you should eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people lose their mind and chaos ensues. See, there are, there are several principles that we need to consider before we wrap up. But I want to focus on one in particular. Remember that in John 1.18, we're told that Jesus came to exegete to us the Father. Jesus explains to us the Father, what the Father is like. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. And we said last time that we carry forward this same thing, this same thinking, and, and it's our role of exegeting the Son to the nations. It's our job to explain Jesus Christ to the nations. He reveals the Father, now we go and reveal the Son. And all that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so Jesus shows us the Father, we show the Son. Now, I think this is a very biblical proposition, so I'm going to assume that you all agree with me on that. So I'm not going to try to prove that again. I think we sort of did that last time. 
But if that's true, if it's true that we are to exegete Christ to the world, to teach the nations who he is and what they're called to do in obedience to him, then it follows that Christ as the great prophet has sent us in the very same manner. John, John says later, I think it's in chapter 19, Jesus breathes on his disciples. Do you, you remember reading that? We'll get to it. I think it's in John 19. He breathes on his disciples and he says uh, that he, he's sending them. An apostello, he's the sent one. That's where we get an apostle, they're a sent one. He breathes on them. The Holy Spirit hovers over his new people, his new covenant people, and sends them into the world. So we're going in the same manner. He is the head of the church. And he's the very authority of and in this covenant temple, this new covenant temple and house. And so this all means that as we go about proclaiming the gospel, sometimes enacting parables in what we do, doing cryptic things, this prophetic ministry then continues. All of us in this room have been called to that task of prophetic ministry. So in Christ, you are all priests. In Christ, we are all prophets. And in Christ, we are all kings. That, that's a biblical truth and reality. Peter talks about it, and so does the book of Revelation. In this extension ministry, that's what we have. We are an outpost of the kingdom. We have an extension ministry. This outpost we call the church, this is not some sort of ad hoc institution that we just conjure up on our own. Well, we like each other. We like Jesus. Let's just do stuff. It's not, it's not an ad hoc, thrown together thing. We are Christ's bride. We are his bride. He died for us, and therefore we belong to him. In Christ, we die. And in Christ's resurrection, we are raised. We belong to him, and therefore, who are we to serve? Jesus Christ. Which means that we too must combat the great sin of first century Judaism. We have to combat the same sin that Jesus confronts here. We too must fight against that which Christ has fought against. And what did Jesus Christ fight against? What did he see? And what, why was he so angry that he made a whip, drove everybody out, probably hit a few guys on the way out, and tossed the tables and brings a denunciation to the temple? What are we? Is it apathy? Sure, we can fight against apathy. We're an abortion ministry. We know there's apathy. Is it nationalism? Yeah, there's that too. But all of that's just the fruit. The question is, what is the root of it? Here it is, here's the answer. Jesus fought against the age-old sin of human autonomy. The age-old sin of human autonomy. The temple had become a place that was in the possession of man. Man was at the center of it all. It was man who believed himself to be the sovereign. It was man who added to the law and thus polluted the law. It, it was the self-inflated lusts of autonomous, autonomous man who longed to take control, who longed to take possession of that which belongs to God. And this particular eschatological reckoning was a problem long before Christ came. And now today it remains an enemy to be defeated long after Christ was raised. And rest assured, it is an enemy. Like the temple, the church can become a man-centered institution ripe for judgment. Like the temple, the church can become a house for thieves and rebellious nationalists. 
Like the temple, the church can become a substitute for the substitute, Jesus Christ, and thus we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. See, man-centered institutions neglect justice. Man-centered institutions sit by idly while babies are murdered. Man-centered institutions prop up pastors and elders as superstars and celebrities as if they are a higher class of men and we shouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. Man-centered institutions sell out the gospel of the kingdom for bigger buildings and bigger programs. That's just what they do. And this means that we must war against this inward lust for power and authority and autonomy. We must drink this new wine offered by the true bridegroom. And we must reject the stale water of a washed-up, unrepentant church. The reckoning found in our passage carries forth today as we cling to Christ and we proclaim his covenant demands and proclaim him we must do. He is the reality to which the temple points. He is the reality to to which the Passover points. Christ is the reality. He is the point, not us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that nations would obey you, that the earth would in fact rejoice in you as The mountains clap for you. I ask that your church would repeat the sounding joy. We are a nation who has rejected you and decided to go our own way. We are crippled under the weight of our own autonomous lusting, and we therefore repent of it. Father, we desperately need reformation, but first, we need a rebirth. Would your spirit lead us and guide us and transform us as we seek to carry forth this eschatological reckoning in the world? I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.